With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe-Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lock-away channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Meg Medina's picture books, young reader, and young adult books have won her many awards, including the prestigious Newbery Medal, and landed her on the New York Times bestsellers list. The title of her newest book, Mercy Suarez Can't Dance, kind of tells you everything you need to know about who Meg is writing for. But here's the thing. She didn't start writing professionally until she was 40 because, as she says, she wasn't courageous enough. We talk about how she got brave and went for it, the trauma of her own formative years, and her advice for other creatives. Meg, thank you so much for doing this. I think about Mercy Suarez and this idea of being 11 and having a year where everything changes. And I think we all had that year, whether it happened at 10, 11, 12. For you, was there a year where everything changed? Yes. And so when I think of middle school or what was then called junior high school, I think I had uh, a really sharp turn south, actually. In elementary school, I'd been a pretty happy kid. I went to my local elementary school. I was in the glee club and what my mother called La Juguera Scout. I did all the things, right? I did all the things. But when it was time for junior high school, of course, the world got bigger. And my mother moved us to an apartment closer to downtown Flushing and into a different school district. And suddenly I was in a big school with a lot of kids who I didn't know of a lot who were rougher than I was. And I just shut down completely, as I recall. My uncle died. My mother's brother died at that time as well. So there was just a lot of trauma and on top of just the crush of growing up. I think as adults, sometimes we think back with 
affection for being a kid and growing up. Oh, it's the best time of your life. It's so fun. And we we remember slightly like the hurts that go on in growing up. But it is really something to see your body change, to see people's relationships change. Suddenly the boys that you played outside with, suddenly that wasn't allowed anymore somehow. And you couldn't really understand why. For me, there were a lot of moments of wrestling with Latini that, what kind of Latina was I? And I was really struggling to figure that out. Unlike Mercy, I just checked out of school. I found it excruciating. And it took me years, really until college, when I finally sort of got through this cycle from girlhood to womanhood to really start to feel courageous again and to feel like myself again. No, there's no amount of money you could pay me to be 12 again. I know it. I feel the same way and more so now. I'm so glad that when I was that age, I didn't have to be connected to social media, for example. And so that's sort of the world of Mercy. She, of course, has other issues that she's, other intersections that she's wrestling with, going to school as a scholarship student and trying to figure out where she fits in culturally, economically, as a girl, as all in all those identities at her school. I'm endlessly intrigued by it. The process of growing up, the things that hurt us and the things that build us, and sometimes at the hands of our own family, the people who love us so fiercely and who in so many cases have sacrificed for us and adore us can also be the engine of a lot of grief. So I, I, I find that fascinating. I do too. And I and I identify with Mercy so much, especially in the way that I had gone to public school in Union City, New Jersey, which is where all the Cubans who had not gone to Miami yeah. went. Yeah. And you know, I was in a, a mixed income, but largely working class neighborhood. We were rich because I had my own bedroom. That was the tell. Then I went to private school for high school and learned that in the context of the broader United States. No. No. Yeah. And learning that not everyone was Latino. I had no idea. It wasn't until that experience that I was like, wait a second, we're, this is a minority experience? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My growing up was a little different. I grew up in Flushing, Queens. And so my elementary school was really a mix of lots of different cultures. And I'm really grateful for that. Long term, my mother always used to, she worked in a factory over on Northern Boulevard. And when things got bad, she was always threatening to, to pack us all up and move to Miami. And we'd have boxes at the ready. And a few times she actually started us packing. We never got there until she retired many years later that, that we moved down. But this notion of, of mostly with Latinos, I did not have that experience. And it's, it was an experience my mother longed for. She wanted so much for me to grow up in Miami and among other muchachas finas and, and culture that she understood, a place where she could speak her language freely and be understood by many people. And even in New York, that has so many immigrant pockets and so on, she really had to work at it. And there were a lot of moments where she was very much the outsider. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. 
Swathers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swathers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blow-up barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blow-ups. Pampers Swathers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size 8. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. At 6.30 p.m., we're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Your parents split right before you're born. Dad lives in Massachusetts, and there's a period of time during those high school years where you go to Massachusetts to be with your dad? Yeah, yeah. Those are really hard days. I hardly ever talk about them. So this will, this is actually very new for me. So yes, I had, as I said, my, my uncle had died in, when I was in middle school, I had tangled with this bully who eventually became the subject of my novel, Yaki Delgado wants to kick your ass, right? And I was just at this really hard crossroads. I was also at the age where I really resented my mother for everything. And there had been just so many difficult moments. The trauma of losing your country doesn't happen um, without consequences. So there were sadnesses and depressions and undiagnosed issues in the family. And so it was time for my sister to go to college. And we went to visit my father, who was a surgeon in Massachusetts. And he had married a, an American lady. He had six other children. And I went to his house and when we pulled up, I remember this so clearly. I slept on a sofa bed with my mother most of my life. And I pull up to this sprawling, incredible house in the woods in Massachusetts. And I just decided I needed to have that. I wanted that. And I wasn't ready to let go of my sister. He agreed that he would help pay for her college if we went to live with him. All these years later, it's a heartbreaking thing for me because I think about my mother and how galling that must have been for her to see us get on a bus and leave her. But life teaches you things and experiences teach you things. And so I did go live there and I got to feel firsthand what it is to be sort of the practice child, so to speak, 
I got to feel what it was like to be a Latina in a largely American landscape. I got to feel for the first time, and this is so sad, but what it's like to not be loved by a parent. And those were just terrible realizations. They were just awful, but they happened. And they were part of my growing up. And now from this space, it allows me, all that sort of pain allows me to see myself, see my mother, see our lives together in in flushing through a different lens. It allows me to write, I think, families with a deeper sense of empathy for the mistakes that are made and the complicated ways we love each other and the complicated ways we fail each other. I don't know. I, I think nothing's wasted, even the really miserable experiences that happen to us. Yeah, it is all right there on the page. Well, that's a beauty of books, right? With kids. That's what I think they do. They, they give them a way to experience life by proxy, safely, sort of watching this thing transpire on the page and make decisions in their mind about who they'd be in that story, what they'd do different, how they might handle it, and so on. It helps them grow up by offering them an experience, I think, that may, might not be theirs. One of the most surprising parts of your own personal story is that you didn't really start writing professionally until you were about 40. <laughs> That's right. And you always thought of yourself as a writer. Mm. You say you weren't brave enough to write this way. Take me back to the day you quit your job and open your parachute. So here's the thing. I did lack courage. And some of it had to do, again, with the way I grew up. Because my mother was minimum wage employee. She didn't have a safety net. She didn't have health benefits, like all those things. And that's what she most wanted for me. She wanted me to have a secure life. And let me tell you, a life in the arts is not that at the beginning, especially. It is a risk in every way. So I tried to do as many other respectable things as I could. I was a teacher for a while, a job that I loved. I wrote advertising copy. I was a freelance journalist. I did so many things that I liked well enough and was good at, but it wasn't the thing. It wasn't this deep thing that I wanted. So we were living in Virginia at that time. I had all three of my children were born and I was working at my oldest daughter's school. My oldest daughter is disabled. She has intellectual disabilities and I was working at her school. I had started as a volunteer and then they hired me as their first development director And literally my office was the supply closet. It still smelled of like pine saw and there were pipes and everything else. And I worked in this teeny little office typing letters, basically asking people to support the school. It was worthy work. It was beautiful work. I was happy from that perspective and also miserable. And so I turned 40 and something inside me just sort of clicked. I just decided that if I didn't try, if I didn't step away from all the things that I was good enough at and happy enough at and really try to go for the joy and the passion, I wasn't ever going to do it. And so I got up and I quit. I told my boss that I was leaving. I came home and I told Javier, oye, I quit my job and I'm going to write a novel. Y por poco se muere. He looked at me, he said, <laughs> blanquito se puso. He was so afraid. But 
I always tell this story because to his endless credit, Javier said, okay, I think you can do it. And I did. And so I say this a, a lot to Latina creatives I meet along the road, right? They're, they're busy. They're raising kids. They have families. Their families don't understand the life of the arts. They feel so ashamed almost to say, this is what I want to do. And I always say, you'll know because there comes a time when not doing it is so painful that you're going to have to make a decision to stand up for yourself but what really matters for you to just take that risk. Well, that, and you also say that the other big place where people fall down is the discipline. Yeah. That, that first year when you're writing that first book, it was really butt in the seat, three to four hours a morning, just consistently knocking it out. Yeah, and that's still true. You got to show up for work and you got to show up for work whether you are on the factory line or whether you are an author, right? I meet so many people who want to be writers or want to do X or Y, right? Whatever the career is, but they leave it in the safe realm of dream. And so the thing is that to make dream the reality, like you have to break it down into actionable steps. It doesn't sound very sexy that way, right? I need to visualize this for myself. That's the first thing. I have to be able to say out loud, this is what I want my life to look like. This is how I want to make my living. And then figure out the smaller steps, the conferences you need to go to, the people that you need to meet. How many stories are you going to write this year? Who are you going to approach to sell your work? And get serious about the business and, and learning what you need to learn to move in that sphere. I've heard you say, and I just love this, that in your process, it is always the girl who comes to you first and you sort of work backwards from that girl and you want to know what she's about, what does she want, and why can't she have it? And part of the reason the hair on my arm stood up when I read that was that's exactly how I approach these interviews. What is this person about? What does or did she want? Why can't or couldn't she have it? Because that is the core conflict we're all up against, whether we're a 12-year-old or a 45-year-old woman. For sure. But, you know, I think that a lot of the arts approach things in that way. What's at the heart of everything is people. That's what's interesting. Always the girl, what's in her heart. And what I find really fascinating is what she's willing to tell me in the beginning. And maybe that's the same thing with interviews, too. What they're willing to tell you in the beginning. And then as you dig what you find out that they almost, it's almost unexpected. My characters sometimes reveal things to me as I'm writing them that is shocking and that I didn't plan and I'm just so surprised. Well, and I find that fascinating about your process that you often don't know what you're trying to say or what the book is about until the end, at which point you go back and very often rewrite the beginning of your book, which by the way, Meg, is a luxury I do not have as a <laughs> podcast host. Oh, no chance. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, that's a thing because the beginnings and endings are bookends, right? They have to hold everything in the middle of the book together. And so sometimes you get to the end and I start to ask myself, so, hmm, so what was I saying about families here? How did Mercy grow here? What was it that she most found out about herself and about other people? And then I go back to the beginning to see, did I promise that at the beginning? 
are there echoes of that, like at the very start of it? And then I shape it somewhat. Like, what do you never get asked that you want to be asked? What do you want to talk about that you never talk about? I think people don't appreciate or would be surprised to know that fears and insecurities, they follow me certainly even now. I am having a beautiful career. I have many professional friends and opportunities. I cannot possibly complain. And yet I'm subject to the same sort of insecurities. Am I relevant? Do I still have things to say? When will that change? Do I still understand the heart of kids? Am I enough? The imposter syndrome that so many of us carry around. So yeah, that lingers. I wish it weren't true. But you know, I was listening to some of your old podcasts with, in fact, I was listening to America Ferreira talking about creatives and film and so on. And there was so much wisdom in there, but that she was talking about her need to please and be pleasant and be a pleasure to work with. And I, I had to stop. I was on a walk while I was listening to it. And I just had to stop and take all her words in because I said, ay, hermana, exactly right. That's exactly right. When I was writing my book, The Likeability Trap, about this exact thing, one of the Latinas I interviewed said, she was like, well, as Latinas, we're raised with a PhD in graciousness. Like, and the sort of like, what will people say? You don't just represent yourself. You represent your family, you represent the neighborhood, you represent every Cuban. That is, I mean, it's like, it's... <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's a lot of pressure. And the fact is like, families are families are family. There's muck in every family. There was just so much concern about what are they going to say and not appearing low and not appearing that you're a sort of a drain of any kind. And so the underlying message, of course, is just that that is the status quo. That is how you're going to be seen. And you have to dig out of that hole constantly. And we see this with kids all the time now, still with Latino kids. I mean, the language around Latinidad and Latino kids and immigration and kids at the border, like all of that has just been so toxically offensive to their identity, to how they think about their families, to their sense of pride in themselves. So, I mean, I think we continue to have a lot of work to do in that area, shore them up. For those of us who are parents, I have two young daughters, educators, anyone who just has a kid in their life who they love, what do they need right now? I think they need a lot of conversation. I'd like to see parents actually reading a lot of books with their kids, making it sort of a family experience. And, you know, there's lots of ways to achieve that, even in families where there's multiple languages being spoken. Like my books, for example, are available in Spanish and English editions. So someone could read Evelyn del Rey se muda at the same time that their kid is reading Evelyn del Rey is moving away and still have connection around the story. I think what we want to be talking to kids about is not only their life and the problems that they're experiencing inside themselves and how they see themselves and so on, but opening the world to them about all the many kids that they're in class with who are in their neighborhoods that populate the world, this country. And really give them some tools to understand each other's experiences, respect them, and embrace that as part of our national identity, as opposed to something to be 
afraid of or something to have to guard against. Meg, thank you so much. Thank you. It was just such an honor to be with you, Alicia. Thank you, as always, for listening. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua and me, Alicia Menendez. Paulina Velasco is our producer. Manuela Bedoya is our marketing lead. Kojin Tashiro is our associate sound designer and mix this episode. We love hearing from you. It makes our day. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Slide into our DMs on Instagram. Tweet us at latinatolatina. Check out our merchandise that is on our website, latinatolatina.com slash shop. And remember, please subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, wherever you are listening right now. Every time you share this podcast, every time you share an episode, every time you leave a review, it helps us to grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.